to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 4, verse 18, as we follow along with today's lesson. He sees the emptiness that is there. He's talking to me about thirsting. And yes, there is a great thirst within. My life is not fulfilling. There's an emptiness. He's looking inside. He sees the emptiness. He knows that I'm not overflowing the bubbly little person that I'm trying to portray. He sees the void. And he knows all about me. I wasn't fooling him when he said, when I told him I didn't have any husband. Wow, he he knew all about me. He sees right through me. And when the mask was off, the question came, where can I find God? People wear all kinds of masks today. But down deep inside of every man, there is that question, where can I find God? The quest of the heart of man for God. She said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that it is in Jerusalem where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans have a religion. They have a form of religion. You have the sacrifices, but you really don't know what you're worshiping. You worship you know not what. The Jews know at least what they're worshiping. They're following the law. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship him. The time has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus in the previous chapter. Jesus said unto Nicodemus, this moral man, a ruler, a teacher of the Jews, a man familiar with the law of God, 
and the worship of God after the scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're to see the kingdom of God. There's got to be the spiritual awakening. And unless you've had this second birth, the birth of the Spirit, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. So basically the message of Jesus to Nicodemus was you've got to have a spiritual birth. You have to be alive in the Spirit in order to really worship and know God. For God is a Spirit. He is saying it now to the woman. And you must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a superior trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Man is an inferior trinity. Body, soul, and spirit. It is in the realm of the spirit that man meets God. His spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And it is only in the realm of the Spirit that you can know God, that you can truly worship God, that you can have a relationship with God. It's a spiritual relationship, and that you can't have until your spirit is alive, born again. And of course, the process by which that happens, Jesus said, is by believing in Him. And the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, your spirit is born again. And you come into an understanding of spiritual things. No man understands the things of the spirit save he who is born of the spirit. The natural man doesn't understand them. He can't know them. They're spiritually discerned. You have to have the spiritual birth. So two people from vastly different spectrums of the of, of society and culture. One, a woman with a horrible reputation. A woman who has made a shambles of marital vows, gone through them five times, and is now living with a man. The other, a very moral man from the upper echelons of society a religious ruler. But the message to both is the same. To know God, to understand God, to worship God is a spiritual thing. You've got to be born of the Spirit. God has to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that when the Messiah comes, and John tells us here, is his little commentary, which is called Christos, the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. And as Mark Eastman will show you Friday night, they, they felt that the time for the Messiah to come was just about the time that Jesus came. They knew the scriptures well enough that they knew that it was about time for the Messiah to come. And many of the rabbis 
uh, wrote about it, and he'll be giving you quotations of the rabbis. But the Jews had a wrong idea concerning the coming of the Messiah. They knew that there were scriptures that spoke of the Messiah's death, his suffering, his being despised and rejected. But they spiritualized those scriptures because there were other scriptures that spoke of the Messiah's glorious reign. And that appealed to them. You remember Paul the Apostle said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we all say, yes, power, I want it. But then Paul said, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's where we back off. Oh, no, no, no. Just the power, that's all I want. And so the Jews were looking for the power, the overthrow of the Roman government. They were looking for a militant Messiah to lead them in the conquest of the world. This woman had a better understanding of the Messiah than did the Jews. She was looking for the Messiah to come and to teach them all things, the way to God, the path to God. I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to teach us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Can you believe that? Jesus revealing the truth of who he is to a woman like this, a woman with such a horrible reputation, a woman who had been married five times and was now living in an adulterous relationship. This is the first recorded instance of Jesus revealing directly to a person that he was the Messiah. Others had said it of him. Nathaniel said, surely you are the Messiah. Philip said, come and see. Is this not the Messiah? He's doing wonderful works and all. But Jesus didn't acknowledge. Later on in Caesarea Philippi, he'll say, Who do men say that I am? And as they tell him the various opinions that men had concerning him, he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Well, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you. Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He didn't actually affirm, you're right, Peter. He just said, blessed are you, your, my Father's revealed this to you. But to the woman, he said, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I'm it. I'm the Messiah. And upon this, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what are you seeking or why are you talking with her? Now, I'm sure they were shocked. You see, the rabbis, according to tradition, would never talk to a woman alone. That was a total taboo. And so they were shocked, no doubt, that Jesus, they marveled that Jesus was talking to this woman. That was a no-no for a rabbi. 
But yet they, they didn't dare say, why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot. <laughs> she had received water. She was never going to be thirsty again. And she went her way into the city and saith notice to the men. I'm sure that the women weren't talking to her. She was a threat to every marriage in town. But the men, they all knew her. And so she said to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did. And I imagine that worried them. <laughs> Is not this the Messiah? And they went out of the city and came unto him. And in the meanwhile, the disciples begged him, saying, Master, eat. I mean, after all, we went into town and we faced those mean Samaritans just to buy this food for you. Come on and eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. God's work of redeeming lost humanity. God's work of restoring wrecked lives. Jesus said, that's what satisfies me. That's the bread that, that gives me full satisfaction. I'm doing the Father's work. The work of redemption. The redemption of lost mankind. Interesting, I've come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The work of God is not finished until you have received the grace of God, the pardon and the forgiveness of your sins, and that new life of fellowship with him. Jesus came to bring you into fellowship with the Father. He came to pay the price to redeem you. You see, it was sin that broke your relationship with God. There in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, there was a severing of that fellowship with God. Jesus came to restore the fellowship, the possibility of man being a total person again, man's spirit becoming alive and thus in fellowship with God. I've come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And interestingly enough, on the cross, as Jesus was dying, he said, it is finished. The work of redemption. He made the way for you and for me to be able to come to the Father and receive the forgiveness of our sins to drink of the water of life, never thirst again. And then Jesus said, don't say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. 
So oftentimes we look at an area and we think, oh boy, that area is going to take a lot of work. Those people just aren't ready. Jesus said, don't say it's going to take four months. You're going to have to plow and you're going to have to plant and then cultivate and, and, and it's going to be four months before we can harvest. He said, just look up. Look at the fields. They're already white unto harvest. Someone has suggested, I think it was Barclay, that uh, the people wore white turbans. And as they were coming from the city through the fields, you could see these white turbans uh, of, of the men of Shechem as they were on the way out where Jesus was. And he said, look, the fields are white already to harvest as, as they were coming on out to hear the word from Jesus. If we only realized the fields around us are ready for harvesting. Jesus said, pray ye the Lord of harvest that he would send forth workers into the field. The harvest is plentiful, but the the reapers are few. And Jesus said, he that reapeth receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying truth, one sows and another reaps. Paul the Apostle picked this up in his epistles. He said, one sows, one plants, one waters, and God gives the increase. So he that plants is nothing, neither he that waters, but it is God who gives the increase. And many times... God calls us just to sow the seed. We may never see the result of that seed that is sowed. It may be that someone else will come along and water it. Someone else will come along and reap. We look at the great crusades of Billy Graham. And we think, my, isn't that marvelous? Look how many people are going forward to receive Jesus Christ. Well, for all of those that are going forward, there's been just an awful lot of prayer. There's been a lot of witnessing. There have been people who have been sharing with them, people that invited them to go to the meeting with them. A lot of planting, a lot of watering. And Billy Graham has the blessing of reaping, drawing in the net. The same with Greg Laurie, the crusade coming up soon in Anaheim. There's been a lot of sowing. There's a lot of sowing going on right now. You've been witnessing to your friends. You've been sharing your faith. They've been watching you, and they observe that there is something different. And when you invite them to go to the crusade, hopefully they will respond and they'll go with you. You have a better chance of maybe you'd tell them, let's go to dinner and then afterwards we'll go to the crusade. (laughs) But what a thrill it is to sit there with your friends that you've invited to come and when the invitation is given, see them go forward and stand out there in the field. And Oh, what a blessing. And so one sows, one reaps. But we're all of us working together for the same cause. And 
And thus we rejoice in the opportunity to sow seed. We also rejoice when we see the reaping, the fruit of the seed that has been sown. And so we rejoice together, he that sows and he that reaps. Jesus said, I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you have entered into their labors. And we read, And many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman. I mean, when she shared with them, they believed, wow, maybe this is the Messiah. They believed her witness, her testimony, that she said, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they begged him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there for two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of you, what you said, but we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, later on, Philip is going to go to Samaria and preach Christ unto them. And multitudes will believe and be baptized. Philip's going to have a tremendously successful revival meeting in Samaria. But here, seeds are being sown already. The way is being prepared. For the future harvest. Now after two days Jesus departed from there and he went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now what is meant by that? Surely he is not referring to the region of Galilee, but he's referring to Judea. You remember he left now Judea because the Pharisees heard that he was baptizing so many people. And he knew that there would be confrontation, and so he left to avoid the confrontation. Judea was his own country. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was registered in Bethlehem. He's coming now to Galilee. Of course, that's where he grew up. But we read, when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all of the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So uh, when, he, uh, when John tells us, or when Jesus said uh, that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, he was no doubt referring to Judea, because when he came on into Galilee, many then did receive him, because they had been down in Jerusalem at the feast and saw what he did. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. Now this is just a few miles from Nazareth towards uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it's about 30 miles from Capernaum, somewhere 25, 27 miles from Capernaum to Cana. He came again to Cana. This is where John records his first miracle. You remember at the wedding feast when uh, they had run out of wine and Mary came to Jesus and told of the problem, and Jesus turned the water into wine. So he came again to Cana, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman 
The Greek word is basilikos. Now, a basilikos is uh, an officer of the king. So this man was, no doubt, one of the officials in Herod's government. It is suggested by some that maybe it was Chusa. Now, we read in Luke's gospel that the wife of Chusa, Joanna, was one of the women who went with Jesus as he ministered around the countryside, attending to the needs of Jesus and the disciples as far as preparing food and things of that nature. But this nobleman, whose son was sick at Capernaum, some 27 miles away. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and he begged him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This man was desperate. His son is at the point of death. He has heard about Jesus. He's heard about the miracles, about the healings. He has confidence that if Jesus would just come to Capernaum, touch his son, that his son would be healed. And Jesus said unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He sort of rebuffed this man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, the belief that comes by seeing signs and wonders is a shallow belief. You remember in the earlier part of the Gospel of John, It said that many believed on him when they saw the miracles that he did, but he did not believe on them. He did not commit himself to them. Why? Because their faith was based upon signs and wonders. It was based upon seeing the miraculous. It was not solidly based upon the word of God. God's word is the sure foundation upon which to build your house of faith. You cannot build a strong house on experience. Many people are endeavoring to do so, but the foundation is weak, and when the storm comes, the house will crumble. You've got to build your house upon the strong foundation of the word of God. And so Jesus is saying, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. He's looking for a deeper faith than that, one that is founded upon God's word, founded upon fact. You see, feelings can change. They can change radically. You can feel all bubbly and joyous and happy, and you can feel exhilarated today and feel miserable and depressed tomorrow. Now, if if your salvation was dependent upon your feelings, 
then the assumption would be, well, I'm saved today, but I'm lost tomorrow because I feel so miserable. I feel so depressed. Oh, I feel so down. And, and uh, thus, uh, you can't base your faith upon the feeling. You have to base it upon the solid work of God. This is what God said. God's word doesn't change. Feelings will change. You can't base it upon experience. Satan is going to be showing all kinds of lying miracles and wonders through the Antichrist, deceiving many. Your faith must be founded upon the fact of God's word. God said it. And God's word is certain. God's word is sure. And so the man, desperate, said to Jesus, Sir, come down or my child is going to die. Now again, he's insisting that Jesus will come to Capernaum. Make this 27-mile journey. Touch my son. And Jesus said unto him, Go your way, your son liveth. Now Jesus gave the word. Faith has to be founded on the word. Jesus gave him the word upon which to found his faith. Jesus said, your son liveth. And so now he has the opportunity to establish his faith on the word of Jesus. Now, they didn't have telephones. He couldn't call up and say, honey, how is he doing? He just had to go believing the word of Jesus. Jesus gave him opportunity for a deeper faith than just seeing the miracles. But faith now in the word where our faith must always stand. And the man believed what? The word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. A challenge. He arose to it. Jesus gave him the word to believe. Your son liveth. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. How important that we believe the word. And as he was going down to Capernaum, his servants met him and they told him saying, your son is well, he's living, he's alive, he's, he's fine. And he inquired of them at what hour he began to amend. Now, he thought maybe the healing would be gradual. When did he start getting well? When did he begin to amend? And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. One o'clock in the afternoon. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Your son liveth, and he himself believed and his whole house. His faith now spreads through the family. This again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, John is recording these miracles, selecting them. Here is an interesting miracle in that Jesus is showing that with God, distance is nothing. 
from Cana, he can speak the word of faith that is activated immediately 27 miles away. So distance is nothing with God working. He can speak the word of faith here and over there 27 miles away. There's an activity as a result of the faith. The boy is healed at that very moment. The fever leaves him. And so we'll continue on as John gives us more evidence of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, so that by believing in that, you might have life in his name. Let's turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 5. In the second chapter of John's Gospel, we find that Jesus was at Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And it was there that uh, he met Nicodemus. He did remain in that area ministering for a time uh, down by the Jordan River, still in the area of Judea, until his fame began to spread and uh, he decided to leave and go up to Galilee. And his trip from the area of Judea to Galilee is recorded in the fourth chapter as he met the woman of Samaria and shared with her the water of life. Now in chapter 5, we find him returning again to Jerusalem for a feast. Uh, some have uh, assumed that it was the feast of Pentecost, but of course we really have no way of knowing the words after this, just after a period of time, uh, his ministry in the Galilee region, uh, where he, of course, uh, had gone to um, that area to minister. And, and, and so at one of the other feasts, and it really doesn't matter which one, Jesus again went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, and here John is just sort of giving us a little background to the story. He's telling you that there in Jerusalem by the sheep market, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda is the house of mercy. And so this pool was called the house of mercy, a pool with five porches and near the sheep gate, uh, which puts it uh, somewhere on the north uh, east side of the city of Jerusalem. And in these gates there lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then was first after the troubling of the water to step in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Uh, an interesting phenomena. All of the sick people around the pool waiting for the waters to be stirred and then there was a mad scramble once the water was stirred to get into the pool first. And whoever was the first in was healed. So you can imagine 
the commotion, whenever the waters were stirred, how all of these people, the blind, the halt, and all, were, were eager to, to get into the water. I believe that there is tremendous power in faith. And I believe that God has given to every man a measure of faith because the scripture declares that is so. And I do believe that what we believe is very important. And I do believe that there is such a thing as what we might say triggering our faith. We read in the book of Acts how that Peter, when he would walk down the street, they would place people on the sidewalk or on the streets so that as Peter walked by, his shadow would fall on them. And people were healed as the result of Peter's shadow following, falling on them. How do you explain that? I believe it's explained by faith. I believe that if a person has faith and he believes that God is going to touch me the moment Peter's shadow falls on me. I believe that our faith at that moment is triggered, it's activated. And thus, people were healed as a result of Peter's shadow falling on them. You remember the woman who came through the crowd when Jesus was on his way with Jairus because of his daughters being at the point of death. And how a woman came through the crowd and grasped the hem of his garment. And Jesus turned and said, who touched me? And Peter said, Lord, you can't be serious. The way people are pushing and shoving us all around this place, what do you mean who touched me? And Jesus said, I perceive that there's virtue that went out from me. And the woman came and kneeled trembling. And she confessed that she had had this hemorrhaging for 12 years. And she felt that if she could just but touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. So she had set a point of contact to release her faith. I think that she could have said, many things. I think that she could have said, the moment he smiles at me, or the moment I catch his eye, or the moment he says a particular word, a place of activating faith. Again, we read when Paul was in Ephesus, they took Paul's sweatbands and they laid them on the sick people, and they were healed. And, and, and again, I believe that it's just a, a, a thing of faith, uh, because you're believing God to do it when that sweatband is laid on me. It gives you that point of contact where you activate faith. I think that so often, uh, though we believe it is sort of a passive kind of a belief. Yes, I believe God can do it. Oh, yes, I believe God will do it. And yes, indefinite, though. 
But I think it's quite another thing to believe that God's going to do it now. And I think that that is really the value where uh, we are commanded in the church to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I think that, again, it gives that point of contact where a person releases their faith when the elders lay hands on them and pray for them in the name of the Lord. I, I believe that that just gives them that that triggering of the faith to receive and to believe the promise of God. So that when these waters were stirred, I believe that people had that kind of faith, and the first one in was, you know, just, I'm healed, you know, and and the release of the faith, they were healed. Now, there was always a great number of people waiting for the stirring of the waters and then struggling to be the first in. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had been there for a long time in that condition, he said unto him, Would you like to be healed? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Interesting. The man didn't answer the question of Jesus at all. The question was, would you like to be healed? And all of the man did was tell Jesus the reason why he wasn't healed. He just sort of repeated his problem. Now, the answer, you know, would be very simple, very plain. You bet I would, you know, or yes. That would have been the answer to the question. Would you like to be healed? You bet, you know. But instead, he told why he was still in that condition. I think that a lot of times when the Lord comes and addresses our place of impotence, Would you like to be set free? Well, Lord, you know, I have this problem and uh, I just have tried so, you know, and we're, we're just telling him all of the reasons why we can't be set free. All of the reasons why we are continuing in our place of impotency rather than responding, yes, I'd like to be set free. And so the man gives to Jesus the reasons why he isn't and can't be healed. Got a problem. I don't have anybody to help me. Someone always beats me into the pool. Here he's been lying there for so long. And can you imagine? Waiting for the waters to be troubled. And the moment they're troubled, all of the excitement as he struggles and pushes and and, then somebody plunges in in front of him. Wait for another indefinite period of time for the waters to be troubled again, you know. Just sad picture. Now, you probably know all the reasons why you're in the condition you're in. You could probably give the Lord a good explanation. What's going on? This is what's happening. This is why I'm still in this same lame condition. 
why, I, why I'm not healed. The question was, would you like to be healed? The next thing I notice is that Jesus just then commanded him to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, at this point, the man could have continued to sort of explain to Jesus what's going on. You don't understand. I really can't rise. I can't take, I'm, I'm lame. I've been this way for 38 years. I got involved with a gal many years ago and she had a venereal disease and this is the, the result of it, this lameness. That, remember the case of the man with the palsy who was let down to Jesus. She has the same kind of a situation here. Uh, a, a malady that is directly related to a sin. And so he could have, again, challenged the command of Jesus. And he could have, again, told of his impotency, why I can't do it. Because you have to recognize what Jesus commanded him to do was impossible for him to do. And he could have pleaded that impossibility. But wisely, he chose to obey this impossible command of a stranger. Now, he had no idea who Jesus was. Here's just a stranger. Comes up and says, would you like to be healed? Well, you know, I've got a real problem, Phil. I, I try to get in the water every time, but someone always beats me to it, you know. Well, rise up and walk. A stranger. Commanding you to do what is impossible. But somehow, even not knowing who Jesus is, there was such power in that word of faith that the man rose, picked up his mat, and started home. Amazing. When you will to obey what is to you an impossible command by Jesus, the moment you will to obey it, you will discover in that moment he will give to you all that is necessary to obey it. Our problem is that we're prone to rehearse our weaknesses. We're prone to tell why we can't do it. And the Lord is saying to many of you, be victorious. Overcome that evil in your life. The Lord, for 38 years I've had this dumb habit, and you're just going on, and, and rather than obeying the command or even willing to obey, you've just been locked in that condition, and you think, well, no, I can't do it. I, I mean, it's just, it's impossible. And, and so you are pleading the impossibility of the command rather than willing in your mind, I'll do it. Be strong, the Lord said. Oh, but Lord, I'm so weak. <laughs> Don't argue with him, just be strong. Be victorious. Because all that you need to obey is given to you in the moment you will to obey the command of Jesus. 
He never gives you an impossible command, but what if you are willing to obey that command, he will give to you all that is necessary to obey it. So immediately, the man was made whole. He took up his bed and he walked. Now, John gets into the problem. But the same day was the Sabbath day. The Jews therefore said unto him, that was cured, it is the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up your bed and walk. The fellow commanded me. I mean, they probably knew the man. They, they no doubt, I mean, a fellow can't be around 38 years in that kind of a crippled condition without your being aware of him. Perhaps you've thrown him a shekel or two at times. The fact that the man is walking after being in that invalid condition for 38 years doesn't seem to excite them or stir them. What stirs them is this is the Sabbath day and you're carrying a mat. And they get all excited over that. This was the beginning of the determination that Jesus has to go. This is the event that begins the process which will cause them to not be satisfied until he's hanging on the cross. His violation of their Sabbath day. And so the man just said, the one who ordered me to be healed, he's the one that ordered me to take my bed and walk. I mean, you know, he's pretty strong commands. Then they asked him, who is it who said unto you, take up your bed and walk? And he was the, who was healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away because there were a multitude of people in that place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said unto him, Behold, you are made whole. And then the command, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Peter tells about the person whose last estate is worse than the first, who has experience but then turns away. Here's a man who has experienced the power of God. He's been made whole. A malady that probably was the direct result of sin in his life. And Jesus is saying, now you go your way and don't sin anymore lest something worse happens to you. And the man departed, and great fellow, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, and they sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. That was the thing that ired them. It happened on the Sabbath day.
But Jesus answered them, My father works today, and I work. My father works on the Sabbath. Aren't you glad? What if the Lord took every Sabbath day off? (laughs) We'd be in a bad shape, wouldn't we? And so, you know, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, and that's good. My father works continually. He works on the Sabbath day, and so I work. Therefore the Jews sought all of the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but now he said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the Jews. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 4 through 5 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord be with you, and may the Lord give you a good week, and may your faith grow, that your life might be rich and full as you inherit the promises of God through faith, and you come into that full maturity in Christ through faith and through the work of the Spirit within your life, in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Have you ever thought about this simple phrase, God loves you? This just might be the most important truth you could ever grasp, that God has called you into a loving relationship with himself. Unfortunately, many of us have been brought up to think that we need to earn God's love. In Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, Pastor Chuck imparts years of wisdom from his own experiences, how he thought he had to work hard and deny his own desires for God to love him. But when he unlocked the secret to God's grace, this changed 
changed everything. Come alongside Pastor Chuck to discover an astonishing truth about your relationship with Jesus Christ. That it's not based upon your works, but based upon God's love for you. It's true. Grace changes everything. To find out more and to read a preview, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download Why Grace Changes Everything by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order this book in print, call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673. 